This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. Welcome to a new episode of the Yonkazine Brief. I'm Peter Hoffland, and in this episode of the program, I'll be talking with Dr. David Cognetti, a professor and chair in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. In this episode, we talk about head and neck cancer and a novel treatment approach called photoimmunotherapy. According to the American Cancer Society, head and neck cancer accounts for approximately 4% of all cancers in the United States. And in 2023, this translates to approximately 67,000 people who will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer and about 15,000 patients who are expected to die of the disease. Today, many cancers of the head and neck can be cured, especially if they are found early. And while eliminating the cancer is the primary goal of treatment, preserving the function of the nearby nerves, organs, and tissue is also very important. And this is where photoimmunotherapy may start to play a role. Photoimmunotherapy is a recently developed hybrid cancer therapy to treat cancers by linking specific antibodies with photosynthesizers to form photoimmunoconjugates. But let's go back to the beginning. Surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy have dominated the treatment of oncology. These therapies aim to eradicate cancer cells, but unfortunately often do that at the expense of normal or healthy cells. In turn, this can lead to severe and sometimes lethal side effects. Overall, the success of cancer therapy, including surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, are measured by what we call a therapeutic index. This therapeutic index compares the potential benefits of treatment to the potential risk associated with this treatment. Unfortunately, the unintended off-target side effects of these therapies can have profound effects on the health-related quality of life of patients. For example, both radiation and chemotherapy sometimes preferentially kill lymphocytes much earlier than cancer cells. This happens because of the increased radiation sensitivity and high proliferation rate of lymphocytes potentially leading to dose-limiting toxicities for some treatment regimens. To find a solution, researchers have developed new therapeutic strategies. And while these therapies have created new and exciting directions for the treatment of cancer, there remain limitations to these novel approaches. Now, in theory, the perfect cancer therapy would both directly destroy cancer cells to minimize residual cancer cells, as well as activate the local host immune response to wipe out remaining cancer cells. And such a therapy would be highly selective for cancer cells, but have minimal or no off-target effects in a tumor microenvironment. And that is where photoimmunotherapy comes in. Photoimmunotherapy is designed to selectively destroy cancer cells. This therapy induces direct cancer killing via immunogenic cell death, thus activating the anti-cancer immune system locally in the tumor microenvironment. The specificity of this approach comes from the antibody that is designed to target an expressed antigen on the tumor surface and is conjugated to a photoactivating chemical. The safety of photoimmunotherapy is based on the fact that the antibody photoactivating chemical conjugate predominantly binds to specifically targeted cancer cells and that it is only activated in areas exposed to near-infrared light at a specific activating wavelength. By choosing tumor-specific antigens, this therapy specifically destroys cancer cells while not or only minimally harming any adjacent normal or healthy cells, particularly tumor-infiltrating immune T-cells or blood vessels. Furthermore, 
The photoactivating chemical is a water-soluble photoabsorbing dye with outside the toxic properties of its own. Clinical studies have shown that this combination can enhance the immune response and, as a result, have a good effect on the treatment of residual tumor and metastatic cancer. The first human study of a photoimmunotherapy was with ASP1929, which is being developed by Rakuten Medical and is used for the treatment of inoperable head and neck cancer. ASP1929 is a conjugate of cetuximab, an anti-EGFR antibody, plus the photoabsorber or photoactivating chemical called IR700. I'm Peter Hofland and this is the Oncogene Brief. The Oncogene Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal Oncogene, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. For more information on how to support this program, visit our website at Oncozine. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866 and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. This is the Oncozine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com. On the phone with me is Dr. David Cognetti. Dr. Cognetti is a professor and chair in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Dr. Cognetti, welcome to the Oncozine Brief. Now, before we're going to talk about photoimmunotherapy and some very interesting data and results presented at this year's annual meeting, of the American Head and Neck Society. Tell me a little bit more about yourself and how you got here. So I'm, I'm David Cognetti, as, as you've already recognized, I'm a head and neck cancer surgeon. I'm based out of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. And I got interested in treating patients with head and neck cancer going back to my training years in medical school at the University of Pittsburgh. I was exposed to Dr. Gene Myers and Jonas Johnson and others. Uh, that, that really introduced me to the field. And when I did my residency training at, at Jefferson, which is where I ended up long-term, uh, it just solidified that these were the patients that I wanted to help care for throughout my career. Now, head and neck cancers are very difficult to treat. Can you give me a little bit of background, how these cancers are treated today? And additionally, why is this disease so difficult to treat? That's an excellent question. Head and neck cancer is difficult to treat for a couple of reasons. Number one is the anatomy that it impacts. If you think about it, your face and your head and neck, that's your presentation to the world. So not only is it your appearance, but it's also the area of many of our most vital functions, communicating, breathing, eating. So head and neck cancer or the treatments to and to cure it or, or try to cure it, have impact on all of those vital functions and a person's presentation in the world. So it can be very devastating for the patient. Interestingly, head and neck cancer has evolved over the last 20 years. I just gave you my background of, of what uh, made me interested in it. When I was uh, first starting off in medical school, the only or the major causes of head and neck cancer were uh, smoking tobacco, or, or any use of tobacco and alcohol. And now fast forward, 
a major cause and the biggest driver of, of uh, oral pharyngeal cancer or throat cancer is HPV, human papillomavirus. Uh, and so we've, we've seen a shift in the types of patients we're seeing. And at the same time, we've had major shifts in treatment options for these patients. So it's as devastating as it can be as a disease, it's still a very exciting time to be in the business of, of caring for this disease. Let's take a break. This is The Youngest in Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of The Youngest in Brief, I'm talking with Dr. David Cognetti. Dr. Cognetti is a professor and chair in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. In this episode, we talk about the development of photoimmunotherapy and head and neck cancer. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others' huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us in today's episode of The Youngest in Brief, I'm talking with Dr. David Cognetti. Dr. Cognetti is professor and chair in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. So during the recent annual meeting from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, there were presentations talking about these transitions from smoking-related head and neck cancer, if I recall correctly, to HPV. Those two forms of cancer, how different are they? For example, when you have a patient that is diagnosed with head and neck cancer that is caused by smoking, or you have a patient that has been diagnosed with head and neck cancer linked to HPV associated with oral sex, how different are those forms of cancer? They're very different. Both the cancer itself, the prognosis for the cancer itself is different, and the people who get them, the risk factors that lead to it. So the traditional head and neck cancer caused by smoking and drinking is generally an older, it generally occurs in older gentlemen who have a lot of other comorbidities caused by smoking. So if they were to survive their cancer, oftentimes they don't have a very good overall survival because they're the ones who are getting heart attacks and strokes and other things that are also caused by smoking, lung cancer, et cetera. And on top of that, of the two cancer types, it's a much harder one to cure, the, the ones that are not related to HPV. 
So now the ones that are related to HPV, that happens now in younger people who have never smoked. So when it first came on the scene, it was a little confusing. Why are these people getting cancer? Now we have a very clear understanding of why they're getting the cancer, but it's in people who don't have the, the other comorbidities caused by smoking. So if you take, instead of a 65-year-old person, you have a 45-year-old person, and instead of somebody who's at risk of heart attack, lung cancer, and stroke, you have somebody who is a very healthy person, and now you add on that they are more likely to be cured, well, you have to count now that they're gonna be around for decades instead of the, the other type where they generally wouldn't live for decades. So how we treat these patients, keeping in mind their functional outcomes over the years is very important. And if you look at the available treatment options for a patient that is diagnosed with head and neck cancer linked to smoking, or head and neck cancer linked to HPV and oral sex. In either case, what is the current standard therapy and the best treatment options for those cancers? Cancer in general, the treatment options are any combination of surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Those are, those are the very traditional one. And what's interesting, we say head and neck cancer, but head and neck cancer is actually a collection a bunch of smaller subsite cancers. And what I mean by that, although we bucket them into head and neck cancer, and although they're almost always squamous cell cancer, which is the surface cell, the tongue cancer, oral tongue cancer, the front of the tongue behaves very differently than base of tongue cancer. The back of the tongue behaves very differently than larynx cancer. The voice box behaves differently than hypopharynx cancer. So, and nasopharynx cancer, they're all individually have different treatment algorithms and prognoses. In some of them, for example, the oral cavity surgery is the preferred treatment. In some of them, for example, the nasopharynx, radiation and chemotherapy is the preferred treatment. So it's different depending on the exact subsite, which is only centimeters away from each other. And based on what you said earlier in this program, surgery may be difficult because it is such a complex anatomical and very congested area, right? So tell me a little bit more about this. In case surgery is needed, it's very complex and difficult, right? It's anatomically complex and it's functionally important. So yes, those two things add up for making uh, surgery difficult. And unfortunately, there's been advances on how we do surgery with a higher prioritization in modern day surgery compared to the past on making sure we account and preserve function. Now. When you look at the field today and you look at the options for treatment, the kind of patients that you're dealing with, what would you say are some of the unmet medical needs that patients are facing in terms of the availability of treatment options and limitations to treatment for patients you may not be able to treat? What are some of the issues that you encounter in your practice today? So unmet needs, there are still many of these patients are not being cured. So number one priority is to improve the cure rate. And then we, we've touched on it a number of times here, how destructive our current treatments can be to the function of the patient. So if you're doing surgery, you're cutting out tissue. And so even if it replaces the non-functional, radiation has long-term devastation on the normal tissue, uh, causes fibrosis, it causes so thick, uh, a stiffening of the tissue, it causes dry mouth and xerostomia and, and really ruins the normal tissue. 
And chemotherapy can have acute toxic effects and make the effects of radiation, the, the side effects, even worse. So wrapped up in all of that, there's plenty of room for improvement on both curing these patients and curing them with their highest quality of life. Because again, the, the location and the impact of this cancer and the treatments have significant you know, manifestations on, on quality of life. Now, you've been working and treating patients for quite some time. If you look back at studies presented at different medical and clinical meetings from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the American Association of Cancer Research, and the American Head and Neck Society, and maybe some other meetings, there is still the question that I hear often. Are there any new treatment options for head and neck cancer coming out? Are there new things available? In contrast, for example, if you look at breast cancer, treatment options for head and neck cancer seems to be very slow in coming. Later in our program, we'll be talking a little bit about photoimmunotherapy and the results of ongoing studies you've been involved with. Some of these developments have been in development for a long time. But tell me, other than the complexities of the disease itself, which we talked about, are there other reasons why it is so difficult to develop new treatment options? Or why is the field moving so slowly? That's a great question. I think you can look at the field almost dichotomously. And what I mean by that is in recent years, it seems like things are really speeding up in new discovery, new options, immunotherapy, and, and what we're seeing across cancer care in general. But you're right. If you take a, a broader picture view and step back, it's been slow advance, very slow movement of the needle in terms of overall survival for these patients with, with the biggest impact on survival in head and neck cancer is probably the virus itself, human papillomavirus. By more of the cancer being related to a human papillomavirus, that in turn has improved survivability, not necessarily that our treatments got better. We were just treating a better prognosis disease. So, so you're right. So part of it is that's what it takes to develop cancer care treatments. Part of it is when new exciting things come on, we do have to carefully study them in a way that doesn't put at risk the patients and the gains that have already been made. And so, you know, clinical trials of the appropriate design and power take time. They, they take years to report out. Let's take a break. This is the Younger Sim Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Younger Sim Brief, I'm talking with Dr. David Cognetti. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Younger Sim Brief. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because... Sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to 
curesarcoma.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us in today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. David Cognetti. Dr. Cognetti is a professor and chair in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Now, one of the interesting technologies that you've been working on is the Rakuten Medical's Aluminox platform technology. In our journals, Oncazine and ADC Review, Journal of Antibody Drug Conjugates, we've written about this technology and the promising scientific and clinical data from some of the agents based on this technology platform. In the introduction of the show today, I briefly gave a short overview of the agents that are based on this technology. Where are we right now in the development of these new agents? Yeah. So Illuminox references something that has been coined photoimmunotherapy. And I think it's important to, in describing it, talk about the background of photodynamic therapy, uh, which has been around for several decades now, going back to probably about the 1970s. The concept of photodynamic therapy is that you can inject a patient with a light sensitizer And once they're sensitized, you can shine a light on the tissue that you want to destroy, in this case, the cancer, and then, therefore, you can kill the cancer. That, despite being around for decades and having been shown to be efficacious in head and neck cancer, it hasn't really taken off. And and some of the problems with it are the generalized light sensitivity that you get with it and just other challenges to adoption in terms of cost, et cetera. Photoimmunotherapy differs in a very important way. It conjugates a monoclonal antibody to that light sensitizer. And theoretically, and what we think we're seeing in in practice, that causes two major advantages. Number one, it concentrates the light sensitizer to what you're trying to kill and treat, the tumor, so better tumor kill. And then two, it concentrates it away from the the normal tissue, and therefore you don't have the severe light sensitivity that's just generalized to the whole body that was seen with photodynamic therapy. So those two things together, hypothetically, lead to major advantages. Illuminox, the first monoclonal antibody to be studied, is Herbitox, which is one of the drugs that was approved for treatment of head and neck cancer going back probably 15 years ago. And that's because it's a monoclonal antibody to the EGFR receptor, which is highly expressed in squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, so so it, conceptually, it's, it's a really nice thing that, that pulls together uh, the, the biggest advantages of photodynamic therapy and adds some, some nice specificity to it, to an antibody that's uh, well expressed in, in squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. So if I understand this correctly, the approach would be best described as something that is similar to, for example, an antibody drug conjugate, where you have a tumor-specific antibody that is very specifically targeting a cancer cell. The only difference seems to me that your payload is, in this case, a water-soluble photoabsorbing dye and not an anti-cancer drug, right? 
Correct. Right. Because the, the dose of the monoclonal antibody, the conjugated light sensitizer is not a therapeutic dose. It's just there to, to concentrate the light sensitizer. So the payload, the, the match, if you will, doesn't get lit until you shine the light on it. Now, how do you shine a light on it? How does that work in terms of antibody light synthesizer conjugate? Because when the antibody finds its target cancer cell, it is still inert. It does not do anything, right? But when you shine a light on it, it is activated. Now, what happens then? So why don't we talk real briefly about how we shine the light on it? Because we, we've talked a lot about the complexities of the anatomy of the head and neck. There's two ways to deliver the light. One is, if you think about a flashlight, and it's called the frontal diffuser, it just shines the light directly onto the surface of the tumor. It has some penetration uh, up to about eight millimeters or so. So that can treat relatively thin superficial tumors or the superficial aspect of a deeper tumor. Uh, obviously, some of these cancers occur under the skin or under the mucosa and or are thicker than that. And in that situation, there's catheters that you can place uh, inside the through the tumor, and then you can deliver, it's called the cylindrical diffuser. You can deliver light from inside the tumor uh, that shines out circumferentially from the infuser that goes through the catheter. You can almost think of brachytherapy and radiation where they place catheters and treat radiation and put radiation seeds in it. We're putting the light inside uh, from inside the tumor. Now, in simple terms, what happens when you shine the light on the antibody light synthesizer conjugate and bring the light to the tumor? What happens at that moment? What is the effect of the combination then? Yeah, the tumor necrosis, the cells actually pop and they, and they die. And what's, what has always been amazing to me is that we can visually see with our naked eye early changes while they're even still in the operating room. So within about a half an hour, you can see a dusky color change to the tumor. And then over the course of the ensuing days to weeks, it will truly necrose. And it's typically a clean necrosis where it develops an eschar and, you know, necrosis away. So that seems to be a reasonably mild approach. Now, you were involved in a phase 1b and a phase 2 study with ASP 1929. Tell me a little bit about the study and tell me a little bit about some of the results of that study presented earlier this year at the annual meeting of the American Head and Neck Society in July. They were presented by a colleague, Dr. Ann Gillenwater, um, uh, who presented the results. She's one of the people who's collaborated on this work over the years. And in this study, the treatment, the Luminox treatment, was uh, delivered uh, in combination with pembrolizumab. And the concept being that perhaps there can be a synergistic effect where the Luminox can increase the antigen presentation, if you will, to the systemic immunotherapy. Right. This is, if I understand this correctly, a phase 1b study. So how many patients were enrolled in this study? And if possible, tell me a little bit more about the conclusions that you derived from this study. Absolutely. There were a total of 19 patients included in the, in the study. And I can tell you that it, from a safety standpoint, it was overall well-tolerated. 
and there was a uh, objective response rate of about 30%, which is probably a good time to talk about some of the challenges we've had in how we study this, which is that the response rates are based on resist criteria. And if refer back to what we were just talking about on how the tumor responds, it actually takes some time for the necrosis to get to the point where it would be fully appreciated on radiographic imaging. And what I mean by that, if, if you were to do CT scans in follow-up on these patients, the necrotic area would look similar in size and in, even sometimes in characteristics to the tumor. So by strict resist definition, you have to measure all of that. That's a little bit of a challenge. I can tell you what we're seeing clinically is that there's very good uh, tumor kill and tumor response with this as early as one or two treatments. That is indeed very good news. And maybe while the number of participating patients may not seem to be that many, it is good to understand that this is still a clinical trial. But I would say from what you've just described, the overall results are very positive. Let's take a break. This is The Youngest in Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of The Youngest in Brief, I'm talking with Dr. David Cognetti. Dr. Cognetti is a professor and chair in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. In this episode, we talk about the development of photoimmunotherapy and head and neck cancer. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. My name is uh, Jinghui Zhang. I'm the chair of a computational biology department at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. I feel so excited about seeing the potential impact, not only on the kids treated at St. Jude, but across the world. One of the major advantages we have in St. Jude is that because of the resources we have, we were able to utilize the most comprehensive way of profiling genomes through this study. As a data scientist, I feel very passionate about sharing data. We also want to enable talented scientists to analyze data using the innovative tools and make new discoveries on top of what we have made. And I think this is a great use of the trust we got from our donors. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us in today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. David Cognetti. Dr. Cognetti is professor and chair in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Now, when you look at ASP 1929, there were also other data presented at this meeting. Tell me a little bit more about this. So we have previously reported on, on a previous phase one, two trial uh, called 101. In that trial, it was not combined with pembrolizumab. And we found similar response rates that were very encouraging based on resist. 
But, and we also found, uh, given the treatment population of heavily previously treated recurrent disease, unresectable, non-amenable to further chemotherapy radiation. So these are really the heaviest hit patients, if you will. And so we had respectable survival as well, even though that wasn't the primary endpoint. But what we did, one of the presentations was to go back to that original population and look at who's still alive. And we identified that despite the previous heavy treatment and these patients with overall very poor prognosis, we had uh, three patients who've been alive uh, for approximately four and up to five years. So that, again, has us very excited about, you know, not just the response rates for this, but the possibility of getting durable, complete responses in patients who really have no other options. Some of those studies, not all of them, are combination therapies, right? From your perspective, where you are, how important are these combination studies, these combination strategies? For example, what does the study which combines ASP1929 with pembrolizumab add to the treatment of patients diagnosed with recurrent head and neck cancer? I don't think we have enough data to answer that question yet. That's, a, that's an area of high interest for further investigation. Uh, I can tell you that we've seen it work without immunotherapy. We've seen it work in people who have failed immunotherapy. However, when I say that, we're talking about local regional disease, right? It would have to be able to be treated with the Illuminox, so accessible and, and treated, which just by that definition limits its utilization in some of these recurrent patients who even have distant metastatic disease. So I think a real promise with the combination is that we may have an option for people who are not only locally recurrent, but local and distant recurrent, who otherwise don't have very good options. And, and the hope would be that the combination, again, sort of priming the, the immune response with the antigen presentation at, at the Luminox treatment might have benefit for even the distant disease. Of course, th that's what we want to learn from these studies, and we, we, but we don't have that data yet. So can you tell me a little bit more about some of the other studies, as well as plant studies, including a phase three study with ASP1929? I think the study is called ASP1929301. Can you tell me a little bit more about this study and what comes next, about your expectations for the future about this technology platform, and the agents that are based on this? So 301, as you just referred to, is an open phase three trial. It's a randomized trial trying to gather the randomized data to be able to, to show the efficacy of this and hopefully get this through FDA approval. And then there's other exciting things in the pipeline. When I described it earlier, I told you that the Illuminox is it's a conjugate of uh, monoclonal antibody to lysensizer, it doesn't have to be Herbitux that is the monoclonal antibody. So there's all sorts of options for what you can conjugate to the lysensizer, even anti-PD-1, et cetera. So I think somebody from Rakuten can talk about their, their pipeline better than I can, but the potential for this, both in terms of what they can do with the drug 
as well as other areas in the head and neck, including earlier line, I think there's great potential here. I think you're right. You've saved the best for last in helping us to understand that the technology platform also allows the opportunity of creating an agent with a different antibody, allowing the development of a pipeline of different photoimmunotherapy agents. We're almost at the end of the program, but in wrapping up, if you look at these developments, developments in the treatment of head and neck cancer and the potential of new therapeutic approaches, how excited are you about this? For example, how excited are you about those new therapeutic approaches, including photoimmunotherapies, and the potential it brings? Specifically about Illuminox and this technology, I, I am personally incredibly excited. And I'm personally excited because, as I just described to you, we, I've seen with my own eyes patients who are alive four or five years who otherwise wouldn't be alive. And I think we're scratching the surface of the potential of this technology, because right now, as we've discussed for the, this half hour, we've only really been able to use it in worst case scenarios. And so if we start using this and it, it lives up to the promise of the showing in these early studies, it, it really could be groundbreaking in how we treat cancer in the future. Dr. David Cognetti, thank you so much for joining us today in the Oncosin Brief. I'm sure that, uh, at least I hope, that this is not our last conversation. And I hope that in the near future, you can tell me a little bit more about these developments in field immunotherapy and, and the treatment of head and neck cancers. Again, very exciting news. Thank you so much for joining us today. Peter, I appreciate that. I would be excited to catch up again in the future. In this episode of the Oncosine Brief, I spoke with Dr. David Cognetti. Dr. Cognetti is a professor and chair in the Department of Head and Neck Surgery at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. Before we go, as a note, in 2018, ASP 1929 received a fast-track designation from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. In addition, in September 2020, ASP 1929 received marketing approval in Japan from the Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare. To date, outside Japan, ASP 1929 photoimmunotherapy remains an investigational agent. For the latest information about photoimmunotherapy, the Aluminox technology platform, ASP 1929, and clinical trials being conducted, as well as regulatory decisions, please go to the website of Rakuten Medical, that is rakuten-med.com forward slash US. For more information about head and neck cancer and about studies presented in this program, please go to our online journal Oncozine at Oncozine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E.com. For us here at the Oncozine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX Public Radio Exchange and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and nearly anywhere you can find a podcast. For more information about supporting the Oncuzine Brief, visit our website at Oncuzine at Oncuzine.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. That is 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology, 
and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. The Oncozine Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncozine and ADC Review, the journal of antibody drug conjugates. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncozine at www.oncozine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.